Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there. I wanted to let you know this episode was recorded before we became aware of the leaked draft of the U.S. Supreme Court judgment, which would overturn the right for women to access a safe and legal abortion in the U.S., This is an extremely distressing development, not only for the impact it will have on women and their right to autonomy over their bodies, but also the broader implications of the precedent it could set for the Supreme Court to restrict other rights. Gloria Steinem was one of the very people who prominently fought to attain abortion rights in the United States some 50 years ago and I know she would have had a lot of profound insights to share on this development. I'm sure you will still find plenty more remarkable content from Gloria in this episode, while you bear in mind that progress is never linear. We cannot take for granted the rights that have been fought for and won. The battle always continues. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. My guest today has been at the vanguard of the women's rights movement as a political activist, journalist, and editor, writer, and thinker for almost 60 years. It is impossible to write the history of the women's movement without her name being at the centre of the narrative. Indeed, her name is synonymous with feminism. Gloria Steinem, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you. And it is a pleasure to be speaking with a woman leader of a country. This is so rare. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Gloria, today I want to talk to you about your incredible life. But before we do that, let's talk about your life now and what you're thinking about. What does feminism mean to you today and how has this changed over your years of activism? Feminism means counting women, which means in a real sense you can't have democracy without feminism. It's very simple. Of course, the word has changed over time in its public acceptance. I remember in the very beginning when I was first identified as a feminist a editor I knew, a very nice man, a very supportive person, called me up and said, Gloria, I didn't know you were a lesbian. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course, you know, we're all included, whatever our adjective is, lesbians too. But the idea that it was synonymous with being a lesbian because it meant that you somehow rejected men, it's hard to believe now, but it was there at the beginning for me. I don't know about for you, but it is now greatly changed. And it's well understood that, for instance, a man can be and should be a feminist. Yet the word has certainly changed over time. And I agree with you about the way in which it was 
accidentally or more likely by way of insult, deliberately confused with lesbianism. This was one of the one-liners of those who wanted to put feminists down and insult to all. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, my first lecture partner, Florence Kennedy, who is someone you might have heard of, a wonderful African-American lawyer, brilliant woman. When we were lecturing together in those days, inevitably, there was some man in the audience would stand up and say, are you a lesbian? And she always said, are you my alternative? (laughs) (laughs) This disclosed nothing, was none of his business, and made the audience laugh. So I recommend it if it comes up. And it says everything. I love that. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. What do you think will be the leading issues for women? What will we be fighting for in 10 or 20 years' time? I suspect that reproductive freedom, reproductive choice will continue to be the leading issue because our one distinction, what we have that men don't, is a womb and the desire to control birth giving and say with whom and when and how many and so on is a characteristic of authoritarian governments. Actually, when Hitler came to power and he was elected, we forget that he was elected, The very next day, the first thing he did was to padlock all the family planning clinics and declare abortion a crime against the state. And I believe Mussolini did the same thing. So I suspect that because we have a unique power, the desire to control or impose conditions on that power will continue to be something of a a ground of contention, though I think we have made huge, huge advances in understanding that it is a simple human right. Are you surprised that we're still here? You've written in the past about having an abortion yourself in your early 20s. You wrote about going to an abortion speak out. At this stage, you were a freelance journalist and women were coming together and speaking about their experiences, all of this at a time that abortion was illegal. And you said about that moment that you felt it as a big click, as a huge spur to your activism. Looking back on it, can you believe that we're still here, that we still don't live in a world where reproductive freedom, which is in fact an expression you coined, that reproductive freedom isn't a right for all women? You know, I'm not sure how myself of those years ago would have felt about myself now. Would I have been surprised or not? Perhaps not. I mean, we have made tremendous advances, but perhaps because it is unique and it is necessary to maintaining distinctions between or power relations between and among different races, different castes, as in India, different classes. I'm not sure of how smart I was in the past, but I think that I would have understood that it was still an issue, though lesser of one. And what are your comments about some of the recent moves in American states where they're weakening or indeed altogether removing the right to abortion? I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw a woman charged with murder in Texas for what was described as a self-induced abortion. Now, thankfully, those charges were dropped. But what are you making of this backlash? Should we expect to see more of it? Well, that is, of course, a remnant, just as we were discussing, you know, of curtailing this power that women uniquely have. And wherever 
in my country at least, wherever racism is stronger or certain religions are stronger or both, then it remains more of an issue because it is the kind of rock bottom power over women. I mean, I think that Napoleon III and Pope Pius IX were interesting example of this because actually the church and Pope Pius IX approved of aborting a female fetus longer than a male fetus because they wrongly thought that men being superior quickened earlier, <laughs> but did allow more time for it when an abortion was okay. And it was Napoleon III who made a deal with the Pope and said, I will only support the doctrine of papal infallibility if you declare abortion a mortal sin. Why? Because he wanted more members for his armies, and his armies had been quite decimated. So the cause for this control is not only or always religious, or, you know, it may come from different corners of current and past history, but it is basic enough. So I don't think we should be too optimistic about having to give up the, or being able to give up the fight. The fight will have to continue, absolutely. You've said in the past, female human beings may be more ourselves before we are 10 or so, before gender expectations begin to kick in, and again after we've passed the age of having children. As someone who has recently celebrated your 88th birthday, what do those words mean now in your lived experience? Well, I've, I've been lucky in my life. You know, I mean, I have not been under that form of control, not even in wage discrimination, because I've always been a freelance writer. I've never been employed. I mean, you know, it's always been a little different for me. But I do think that because various other efforts to be superior, I mean, you know, for instance, in my country now, the first generation of babies who are majority babies of color has just been born. So this country is clearly not going to be a majority white country. This seems to me kind of a great thing. You know, we'll have better food, more interesting culture, but it doesn't seem so to some people. So it has caused a backlash, which was not believed in by Trump, but was exploited by Trump to try to get support and caused him to take his anti-choice positions. That's absolutely true. And uh, unfortunately, he has not exited the stage, Donald Trump. I do want to take you back to the beginning. You had an unconventional, indeed difficult childhood. You were constantly on the road in your early years because your father, Leo, was a roaming antique stealer. You were 10 years old when your parents separated and you effectively became a carer for your mother who battled severe mental illness. Can you share with us a little about how those experiences influenced you, your choice of career, and your political activities? Mm. Can you feel how well, it fed in? Yeah, I mean, I can contemplate how, but I think it's hard for all of us to think who we would have been as a unique person in the absence of some major condition. Perhaps part of the reason I never felt compelled to have children is because I had already been a small person responsible for a big person 
which of course is is not representative of parenthood, but may have made me feel hesitant about being a caregiver again. As for my itinerant on the road, not much regular school childhood, I suppose that made it easier for me to be a freelance writer and never have a proper employer. You know, I was sort of accustomed to it. <laughs> accustomed to insecurity, to, to, yes. to living with yeah. that but sort I, of freedom, but also that sense that you don't know what tomorrow might bring. True. I think perhaps the important thing is to really look at whatever happened to us in childhood and see not only its negative aspects, but its positive aspects, because whatever it is enables us to understand other people who share this experience or may equip us for a more independent life. Or I mean, whatever it is, is, you know, so we need to look at it and see both its disadvantages and its advantages. Can you cast your mind back to your childhood and remember the time when you first thought to yourself, hmm, girls get treated differently to boys? Hmm. Well, I grew up reading Louisa May Alcott, who was very conscious of this and who, who was very political in her writing, many things in addition to Little Women. I did go to school briefly long enough, you know, to maybe kindergarten and first grade to understand that the boys had the bigger part of the playground <laughs> and the girls only had a little corner where they could play jacks. <laughs> and we understood that was unfair. You know, we said, okay, why can't we have it at different times and so on? I mean, kids definitely have a sense of fairness. And indeed, the single phrase that I've heard most, whether I was living in India or here or Europe from kids is, it's not fair (laughs) in every language. Can you tell us about your time in India? I mean, despite this very disrupted schooling, you did go to college and succeed at college and then took yourself to India. Why? Well, because I was offered a, a fellowship, which was really just a few hundred dollars, but I went and sat in Pan Am Airlines office for so long, they gave me a free ticket to get rid of me. <laughs> and also because I was engaged, as in, in my generation, most, if not all, young women were engaged or getting married soon after college or even in your last year or whatever. A very nice man with whom I remained friends. And so, but I just knew that that would be an error. It seemed as if it was my last choice in life. And because he was a good person, a very tempting person, I also felt it would be useful and helpful for me to get very far away. <laughs> so I had an additional reason to take that fellowship. And and to not go through with the engagement and, and the wedding. not go through with the engagement. But a- actually, I was just in Austin, Texas, uh, to do a speaking engagement with Margaret Atwood, the great Margaret Atwood. And the granddaughter of the man I was engaged to, who is no longer living, came to see me with her daughters. So we maintain a familial relationship. So, you know, we form family in all kinds of ways. We certainly do. And when you came back from India, you began your career as a freelance journalist in New York. And to quote you describing the industry at this time, you said, 
the gender ghetto in journalism was not a glass ceiling, it was a glass box. Can you describe the world you entered when you began your journalist career and the challenges you faced in what was obviously a notoriously male-dominated industry? The kinds of assignments I could get were, sometimes they were very good assignments, but they were also gendered. For Esquire magazine, which was a men's magazine, I could write about the women's movement, but I was still writing about something that they viewed I had expertise in, or for the Sunday Times, the New York Times magazine also. Actually, the low point of my journalistic career was being assigned a piece by the New York Times on textured stockings, (laughs) which which were then a fad, right? And I wrote it. I mean, I wrote infinite detail back to Louis XIV about textured stockings. But it wasn't until I was one of the founders of New York Magazine and I had a column of my own that I could write in that column and indeed write features about political campaigns and other things that also interested me. And you were not only involved in New York Magazine, you launched Ms., which was a magazine for women. I mean, it just seems so audacious to go from freelance journalism to founding magazines and thinking that's going to work. I'm sure that there would be a lot of women out there, some who are in insecure work, some insecure work, but who would think to themselves, wow, a jump like that into the unknown where so much could go wrong. Can you talk to us about what was motivating you then, how you thought about that and how you managed the stresses involved in it? You know, fortunately, we didn't know how audacious it was. Otherwise, we might not have done it. There were other women's magazines with very good, intelligent women editors, but they were limited by ads. So uh, they had to publish articles that supported their ads, and that severely limited what they could do. We decided that we would try to publish a magazine that was unlimited except by women's interests, this, of course, meant we couldn't get ads because, you know, it meant after a few years that we had to become a foundation in order to raise money because we couldn't get ads. But it was worth it because it meant that we could cover the first cases of sexual harassment, that we could publish the I Have Had an Abortion petition that was started by Simone de Beauvoir in France and caught fire around the world you know, that we could publish according to women's interests. And we were rewarded by bushels and bushels of mail, way more mail than other magazines got, you know, by a hundredfold, with letters that essentially said, now I know I'm not crazy, or your magazine comes into my house every month like a friend, or could you do such and such an article? You know, it was a very moving, important dialogue. And we saved those letters and they're now, I think, a good record of the movement. It was certainly a huge contribution to enabling women to have a space to pursue serious issues through the journalism, but also to feed that into the political dialogue of the time. 
And the political dialogue of the time was, I mean, hugely exciting, wasn't it? A world of change. You co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, a national organisation to advance women in politics. Can you tell us about the energy of that, what it felt like to build that sort of movement? Yes, and the caucus was also founded by Bella Abzug, Patsy Mink. You know, it was a very multi-partisan, I'm not sure it could happen now, given the divisions we have in the, with the political parties, but it really was the goal of women to be equally represented in all the parties at that point. So we had a national conference in Houston that probably is still the biggest, most representative, elected state-by-state meeting that this country has ever seen. You know, it was an enormous accomplishment, and it was funded by Congress because three of our founders were members of Congress. I don't think that could happen now. That's a really interesting observation that politics, for, for all the forces of resistance that you met at the time, you know, women were not routinely on the political landscape. Obviously, some women were in Congress, but small numbers of women. There hadn't been this sort of mass movement of women in quite this way, focusing on politics, focusing on change. And yet with all of that, you looking back on it, compare it to today and think the hyper-partisanship of today is more destructive of women's solidarity. Is that how you see it? Well, it's based on anti-woman policy. I mean, it's based on, for instance, anti-abortion policy. So it's a different landscape. I mean, then Shirley Chisholm, who was a candidate for the presidency in 1972, she single-handedly took the white male-only sign off the White House door, you might say. Though the sign has been taken off, no one has entered. I mean, now we have a vice president. But as you point out, I suppose you might say that the issues of racial and gender equality, and also of of freely chosen sexuality, have become popular enough and deep enough so that they are more divided because a third of the country is more worried because we're succeeding. And so you think the backlash gets stronger the more success there is. So in some senses, the backlash is bad, but it's because advances are being made. Yes, the backlash is a smaller group of people, but it is more devoted and stronger, as you can see in the Trump supporters. They know they are losing. I mean, you know, in terms of numbers and public opinion polls and uh, who supports what issues, they know they are losing. So they've become much more ferocious. And against that backdrop of them being more ferocious, I mean, you've supported many women candidates over your lifetime. You just spoke of Shirley Chisholm then in the 1970s, an African-American woman who put herself forward for selection by the Democrats as their presidential candidate. You supported Geraldine Ferraro in the 1980s, Hillary Clinton in her 2016 campaign. The treatment of those women over time, uh, (laughs) Vice President Harris now, is it getting better? Can you imagine a time when there will be a woman president of the United States? Are we within touching distance of that? Yes, of course, it is getting better and I can imagine it. But one of the reasons why it's so inspirational to look at you 
and the few other female chiefs of state in the world is that you are our aspiration. I mean, the, the idea that we would be able to choose our leadership from the entire population is still a dream here. One of your key areas of political activism was campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment, which was an amendment to the US Constitution designed to guarantee equal legal rights for all American citizens, regardless of sex. Last month, the amendment was finally ratified 50 years after it was first approved by the US Congress. What did you think in that moment? Glass of champagne? Yes, but we don't have it yet, you know, because it still has to be accepted and imprinted, you know, in order to be in effect. I mean, it is ridiculous. I think we might welcome visitors from other countries with huge billboards in every international airport in this country that says, welcome to the only democracy in the world that does not include women in the Constitution. It, it is ridiculous. But there are results of it that even even though the vast majority of Americans support the Equal Rights Amendment, both women and men, it probably would change actuarial tables with which the insurance industry distributes its risks and so on. So it might have a financial impact on some indus- industries. I don't know if that's the motivation of the individual state legislators who are still voting against it, however ineffectively, or why it hasn't been enacted since enough states have. But if you just gave women equal pay for the work we are already doing, it would mean that women got about $400 billion more (laughs) than they are currently getting. So it does have economic consequences but important consequences for fairness, absolutely. So much of your work and your feminism has been informed by, indeed empowered by, women's conversations. You've been a strong advocate for the power of talking circles in the women's movement as a way to share stories and ideas. When the Me Too movement exploded around the world, Did you think of that as an international online talking circle, a different way of using that technique of women coming together to tell their stories? And how did you think about the Me Too movement when it sort of rose to international prominence? No, I I mean, obviously, we were all glad to see it. And it was something that in my lifetime had begun with the term sexual harassment, which was, as far as I know, coined by university women who were trying to describe what happened to them in their summer jobs. Then it became a legal term and so on. So it's it's been growing as an acknowledged experience and in a larger sense, an understanding that if our bodies don't belong to ourselves, there's no democracy for both women and men. And where do you see the Me Too movement going to now? Can you see it resulting in legislative or other changes that make a real difference in women's lives? Well, I think it depends here because it sometimes varies from state to state or company to company, certainly. But it has really made clear that our bodies are our own, male or female. I mean, it could apply to men as well and that touching or commentary 
is not a, an acceptable part of, of any job. I do think it's changed consciousness in a big way, and that's very helpful. I absolutely agree uh, that it's changed consciousness. When we survey the women's movement, there are times of huge activism and agreement, but there's also times of disagreement too about the way forward where different women see things differently. Now, you're no stranger to women's debates, to, you know, controversies. There's been criticisms of various things and decisions you've uh, made in your life. You went undercover as a Playboy bunny, for example. People criticised that. You know, there were debates around the Equal Rights Amendment. All of those debates and potential disagreements within the women's movement In your experience, how should we think about solidarity and managing our debates and disagreements in the movement? It's quite a hard question, I think. Well, it's helpful to remember that we don't learn from sameness. We learn from difference. So if we want to expand our understanding and our knowledge, we need difference. It's it's a positive, not a negative. I don't feel that I've suffered from it. I mean, I, I feel like I've had much more inexplicable support probably than, than I deserve. You're talking about the underground bunny stint that I did. I don't remember that people disagreed with that. I mean, they were kind of delighted to see the working conditions exposed. And uh, sometimes I still get from the last remaining bunnies, you know, thank you notes, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I haven't felt that. I mean, I've felt way more solidarity and support. I mean, and, and sometimes just the most casual and moving ways. If I'm walking through an airport lobby, someone I don't know and will never see again will come up to me and say, thank you for this or that, or I experienced this too. Or so. it's, it's much more instant connection, instant friendship, instant support than it is anything negative. What gives you hope about the fight for gender equality? Well, first of all, hope is a form of planning. You know, if we don't, if we don't hope, we have no future concept that will urge us forward. So hope is quite practical. If we share them, if they're even more practical because they help us form a community, no, we're not alone. We are communal animals as human beings. We desperately need to know we're not alone. So I think hope is definitely a very, very important and practical part of everything and certainly of a social justice movement. And you are still hopeful. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still doing the work of planning for us. That's fantastic. (laughs) You know, because I'm accidentally recognizable in some cases as part of this movement, I perhaps get a special dose of people (laughs) who share a hope or want to describe something specific and practical that they think should, should happen or something. So it, it's it's kind of like instant friendship. You're with strangers and, and yet not because you share hope. I'm going to come now to the final few questions. They're in the format that I ask each of my guests. And the first one of them always starts with a fact. And the fact I wanted to put to you is the following one. 
At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we recently conducted a global survey on attitudes towards gender equality. Internationally, we found that 45% of people don't believe that gender inequality really exists and that a third of men think that feminism does more harm than good. What does that mean for you hearing those facts? What do you want to say to the people and particularly the men who hold those Mm. views? Well, what comes into my mind when you say that about a third of men is that a third of men must still need dominance (laughs) as part of their identity through no fault of theirs. They've been raised with, you know, some idea that masculinity involves or uh, necessitates dominance. Though it's possible that they're just also misunderstanding the fact that feminism just means equality. I don't know. We'd have to have a discussion (laughs) about it. But I don't feel discouraged by that. I just feel there's more to do. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to face? Well, when you say that, I mean, first of all, I'm a freelance writer, so not working in a structure means that I've had to face much less, I think. But working in the past as a freelance writer for, say, the New York Times, the Sunday Magazine, I mean, I I would go in and deliver my manuscript and the editor would give me a choice. Either I could go to a hotel room with him in the afternoon or I could mail his letters on the way out. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think that would happen now. All right. It, it, it was a kind of feature of life. And, and just the assumptions about, about women that we may be accepted okay when we explain who we are, but the assumptions about do we or don't we want children? Are we married or not? What, how we look, what race we are, what, you know, seem way greater and more plentiful than the assumptions about male human beings. If you could change one thing overnight for women, what would it be? Safety. I want them to be safe. Not to have to worry walking in the street, whether it's uh, daytime or nighttime, not to have stares and attention to their physical selves more than men do, but just to be accepted as human beings. Hello, we are all, I mean, what is the same about us as human beings is way, way more than anything that might be called different because of gender or race or ethnicity. We are each born a unique person who could never have happened before and could never happen again. And I hope that we might be viewed as both for both our shared humanity and our individual uniqueness. What's next for you? What's next for Gloria Steinem? Well, I hope more writing. I mean, uh, you know, I can't begin to tell you how much time I spend online doing things that are important or going to meetings. Going to, but like many writers, I will take almost any excuse not to write. And <laughs> this, this means that I'm way behind I mean, I'm 88 years old. I have. I want to finish the book I'm working on at least, if not more. So hopefully your question will energize me so I will spend my time better today. 
I'm a big believer in throwing yourself into book prison. I am uh, by no means going to compare myself as a writer to you. That would be just completely wrong. But the only way I can do it is to be in a room with no distractions, me and the computer and everything on the computer off except the program to type in the words. <laughs> You've written more than I have. So you are, you are an inspiration to me. Oh, nowhere near. Nowhere near. <laughs> But I am going to put the last question to you and we put this uh, question, we use a quote from Virginia Woolf for each of my guests. And you might ask, why Virginia Woolf? Well, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London is housed in the Virginia Woolf building. And of course, uh, Virginia Woolf is famous for her essay, A Room of One's Own. And so we named this A Podcast of One's Own. And it was to that essay, A Room of One's Own, that I look for inspiration when selecting a quote for you. And it is as follows. Virginia says, give her another hundred years, I concluded, reading the last chapter. Give her a room of her own and 500 a year. Let her speak her mind and leave out half that she now puts in. And she will write a better book one of these days she will be a poet. Gloria Steinem says? I say to that that a room of one's own is still a sacred requirement because it means solitude, it means freedom, at least for a time, from the demands of family and children and bosses and so on. It means the ability to have an identity rather than supporting the identity of others. And I, her, her words are as valid and beautiful and courageous and important as they were when she said them. Gloria, thank you so much for those wise words, all of them, and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash GIWL and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at GIWL Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.